put in properly the amount of work that he has done. I want to thank Avi Garson also for all of his dedication. Of course, uh, the Montefiore Endowment and the S&P and Dangor Education and all of the people who were involved with that, which um, also took a good deal of effort and work, but we're very grateful for all of that work that has been done. And may it be, Yihiratzon, that all of it should emerge into blessing and that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it should find favor in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's eyes and we should be Zocheh to study Torah. I want to, before I begin, I, I know that all of us, I'm sure that all of us have had half of our hearts, if not more, occupied on what's going on in Eretz Yisrael. And uh, so I am, I am saying these uh, short Divrei Torah that I want to share with you as an opening to... Um, to Professor Zohar's very interesting shiur. He's speaking on Israel Moshe Hazan, is that right? Right? Which is, I mean, what a figure. It would be Israel Moshe Hazan is, you know, a, a towering figure in our in our recent history. And so I'm so excited for you to be able to learn from Professor Zohar tonight about him and about his his thought. Um, but we we certainly want to uh, we're keeping our minds on what's going on in the Eretz Hemda, in the Eretz Kodesh, and so I want to say these words um, as a dedication to all of Achenu Bet Israel that are in Eretz Israel, and that uh, Hakadosh Baruch Hu should protect them and watch over them and and bring bring peace to the Eretz and to our nation. Um, I'm only speaking uh, shortly, and therefore I only have a very uh, a short idea. But but this idea, this concept, I believe, is the core of what it is that we are we are aiming to do with the habura. And that is very simply that the habura is not about information. It is not about data. It is about framework. And there is a huge difference between the two. Now, of course, you will learn a great deal of data. But this is data that if you really wanted to, you can learn by opening the books and listening to lessons and so on by many of the people that we are very grateful and honored to be able to have teach on this platform. It may take a bit more effort on your part, but we would be very happy to recommend books and to recommend lectures and so on. You go ahead and do that. This is not just a platform of convenience. There is something more that comes by being engaged with this virtual and in various places and situations, physical bit midrash. And that is this. If you spend your time and you dedicate yourself to learning and listening, to what is being offered here at the Habura, you will not just gain information and data, you will gain a lens through which to see the entire Torah and Judaism. You will gain a framework through which you will be able to understand and interpret all of the data points that you will ever learn. And if you are here, even though you may not be able to articulate it, or you may not have thought to articulate it, maybe you have, it is essentially what it is that you're looking for, I would imagine. What you're looking for is an understanding of what it means to be a thinker in the 
perspective of what we are calling classical Sfarad. What was the way that Harambam saw the Torah? What was the way that Rabbi Israel Moshe Hazan saw the Torah? What was the way that Rabbi uh, Ben Siona Ziel saw the Torah? I'm sure there were nuances of difference between them. I mean, they lived in different generations and in different years and times. But what was their way? What was the lens that they used to see the Torah that they studied in the world in which they lived? And what I, my desire is, my impetus, my uh, drive for, for contributing what it is that I contribute to this endeavor, to this project, to this Bet Midrash, is to provide that lens in a way that is, it is, that is in your grasp, to bring the tremendous toil that otherwise would be required down to your space, to earth, so that you're able to access it. Because to me, it's as though there is this, you know, say there's, imagine there's a physical lens in, in a nice protected pocket that is buried somewhere that only very few people knew how to access or had access to. And then suddenly it kind of lost its, its presence and its direction and the awareness that it was even there. And what I want to do is I want to take it out, I want to shine it, and I want to present it to all of you. And that's really what it is that this is about. Nothing else. I mean, there are maybe derivative elements of it. So sure, sure, you'll learn about Rabbi Israel Moshe Hazan, which is wonderful, because he was wonderful. But there is an, there's an added element to that. You're learning about Rabbi Israel Moshe Hazan tonight, because when you learn about him, and you learn about the way that he wrote and he thought, you will begin to put together that lens. And every element of study on this platform, that is my dedication to you as the Rosh Bet Midrash, every element of study on this platform will help fill in and create clarity for that framework and lens. Now, I want to say a bit about why that's important. Because all of this may be intuitive and maybe that I'm speaking to the choir. But as I always say at Lauderdale Road and at Bevis Marks when I'm on the pulpit, I've said this many times, I believe in preaching to the choir. Because it's the choir who needs to hear this. And it's important that the choir knows why they're singing and in which framework they're singing. And so this is what I think is important to understand about framework in general, about concept, context, lens in general. There is no inherent value to isolated data points. I could bring you a line from the Talmud and I could give it to 10 different people. I could give it to my friends in my interfaith relations. I can give it to my imam friends and I can give it to my, you know, Anglican priest friends. And they will interpret it in different ways based on their frameworks. And their interpretations would be false, even though they may be good, they maybe have insights, but they are not interpreting it within the context it was meant to be seen in. And that is very important for us to understand now, when we talk about within Israel, 
and the various strands of perspective within Yisrael, the various frameworks within the Jewish people, I wouldn't say that the way that they see it necessarily is wrong if it's not the classical Sephardi way of seeing it. As we know, we have great tradition in Israel that there are more than one way to see the Torah, to, more, more than one way to see the Torah. But what you're here for is our way, this specific way, the way of our fathers and grandfathers, the way of our ancestors. That, as I say, is a lens that has been kind of lost and left aside. And what I'd like to do is to be able to represent it to you in whatever capacity I can. And I believe that we have an absolutely unique opportunity to be able to do that because the online element of this Bet Midrash allows us to draw the greatest teachers from all over to teach you. Professor Zohar is speaking to you from Israel tonight. You will have teachers to speak to you from New York. You'll have teachers to speak to you from London. You'll have teachers to speak to you from other countries and other cities. And how beautiful is that? And how exciting is that? I'm excited. I'm certainly excited. Sin is excited that there's more than 30, 30 members. I'm excited that we get to bring teachers from all over the place to be able to teach you and teach you in the best possible way. Not that he's not excited about that, but you know what I mean. I just like to pick on him every now and then because I love him. So the important thing is to recognize before you start any of the learning, remember that more important than any detail you study, any data point that you study is the framework within which you process it, the way in which you see it. In Hebrew, the, way, the word for that is derech. It's a way. There are many ways one can do something. The way is what makes the difference as to the quality and value of what is done. It's the same thing that we would perhaps, uh, you know, use or express when we say to somebody, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. And any of us who have been in such a situation know precisely how important that is. There are times where people can say things in a certain way and that not even be a tone of voice, just a facial expression that makes all the difference in terms of its meaning. You know what we call the nonverbals. The nonverbals make all the difference in the world in terms of what something means, do they not? A simple tone of voice going up or down at the end of a sentence makes all the difference in terms of what it is that it means to us, does it not? Of course it does. Do not underestimate the framework. Do not underestimate the way, the derech, and the value it has on the information that you will study. And what we are presenting here is not data points as much as a way. It is why I want you to consider the following two points and then of course, I will hand it over. And that is this. The Torah itself is extremely concerned about this. And there are two ways that we know that the Torah itself, I mean the written Torah itself, is extremely concerned about this. How do we know this? We know this from the following two ways. First way is 
that there is a very strict rule as to how it is that a Sefer Torah must be written. And that is that it's not just that the letters need to be shaped a certain way. The graphic presentation of the Torah must be preserved in a certain way. What do I mean by graphic presentation? Any of you who have seen the inside of Sefer Torah, and there's no reason why any of you should not have seen the inside of a Sefer Torah, whether you're man or woman, you should have been able to see the inside of a Sefer Torah. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why there is a halacha to show the Sefer to the kahal is so that the kahal can see the Sefer Torah, right? So you will have seen at the very least at a glance, the inside of a Sefer. And you will have noticed that the Sefer has paragraphs. In other words, there are blocks of writing with gaps of no writing and then blocks of writing again. Yes? Yes? Can I get some head nods? Thank you. Yes. So you know what I'm talking about. There's Sefer Torah. It's graphic. It has a very strict graphic presentation. Why strict? Because, listen to this, the halakha is, the law is, that if a Sefer Torah is meant to have a specific gap with no writing, I'm not even talking about the writing, the writing is pristine and perfect. The letters are expertly crafted. But there is in one place a gap that is meant to run to the end of the line with no more writing. We call that a pituha. And instead it was written as a gap in the middle and writing was carried up again on that same line inappropriately, meaning not according to our tradition. The entire Sefer Torah is pasul. It is invalid for use. It doesn't have the same holiness and sanctity of a Sefer Torah. You hear what I'm saying? Everybody follow what I just said? If the gap is not an appropriate gap according to our tradition, the entire Sefer Torah loses its kedusha. It is no longer a Sefer Torah. And why is that? Because the graphic presentation of the Sefer is essential. You say, well, what is the graphic presentation? Well, there's a lot in the graphic presentation, but this is one minor element which makes the difference in terms of the holiness of a Sefer and not the holiness of a Sefer. When you have a gap that is meant to be blank to the end of the line, right? So I have writing, 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 writing to the middle of the line, gap till the end, and then the new line starts on the next line, that is an indication that the, the relationship between the two paragraphs are further than if it were a closed gap on the same line. Yeah, I understand I'm asking you to do all of this visually in your heads, but you're following what I'm saying? A way to recognize this is Roman numeral outlines. So one Roman numeral and a second Roman numeral, right? When I'm ready to go to Roman numeral two, which means that I'm ready to talk about a new subject or a new section of a subject is equivalent essentially to a Sefer Torah having a gap all the way to the end of the line. You follow? If the gap is in the middle and picks up writing on that same line, it's like a letter under one Roman numeral. It's a sub-element of an of a already open uh, concept or situation, idea. If that's messed up, the whole way I understand the Sefer is messed up. You follow me now? Contextual presentation, not the words, not the data points, 
the contextual presentation of the data makes or breaks a Sefer Torah. And I'm going to close with this with one minute left. One of my most favorite lines, and there's so many, from Harambam. Harambam writes the following in his Pirusha Mishnah, in his explanation, his commentary on the Mishnah. This is at the very end, the last lines of his commentary on the tractate of Birachot, the first tractate of the Mishnah. And he says the following. He says, Darki tamid, my way always. Bechol makom, sheyesh ezeremes emunah Anytime there's even a hinting of the system of our belief, right, the way we think, I will pause to explain something about it. No matter what, what issue we're dealing with, I will stop and start to talk a bit about that. He says, why? Ki hashuvitli. Rambam says, it's more important to me to explain the foundation fundamentals of our dat, of our whole way of Torah, than anything else that I teach. And Harambam taught it all. It wasn't a bit of Torah Harambam didn't teach. So you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's more important for me to teach you the fundamental principles, the frameworks, the way in which we think, then it is for me to teach any piece of information that I will ever teach you. So with that, welcome to the Habura, because it is an exciting trip and we are on an intriguing path. It is a way that belongs to you. It is a way that lies in waiting for you to come and claim. It is the way of your ancestors. And it is your right and privilege to be able to come and discover it and to make it part of your life, to use it as a lens through which to see all that you see. So I wish you Hatzlaharaba, and I'm sure that we will see each other soon again. And if I don't see you before Shavuot, I wish you all a Hag Shavuot Sameach. What a wonderful time of year to launch a bit Midrash. And uh, I hope that you enjoy. Uh, the Professor Zohar's um, presentation on the Bisoy Moshe Hazan. I see that here he is. Reb Tzvi, Hashem Ishmerechem. Good to see you. Good to Thank you very much, Raf. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. Now, please stay. We're going to be having Professor Z Zohar uh, continue his series on Chukot uh, Gaim with the perspective of Reb Israel Moshe Hazan. Uh, a reminder that, well, not a reminder, but it's a, a new piece of information that July 5th, the first shiur that we're having as part of the membership program, will be taking place at Lauderdale Road in London. And we are very excited to have a big projector slash screen so that all the international students are able to join in uh, as we will do for the rest of the uh, curriculum. So what I'm going to do now is ask Professor Zohar, I'm just going to find you here, and I'm going to make you co-host, Professor, and I'm going to pin you. Okay. All right, can you hear me? I can, I can indeed. Just a quick intro to the Professor. I'm sure a lot of you already know the Professor. He's been with us a few times, and a couple of weeks ago, we had part one of the series. Uh, professor Zohar studied three years at Merkaz Arav Yeshiva and was uh, appointed the uh, Professor of Sephardic Law and Ethics at uh, Bar-Ilan University. 
And we are very, very, very excited to have someone who's written on history, Sephardi, history, Sephardi Mahshava, Sephardi Halakha, with us here to continue this very exciting series. And of course, the one of the highest voted series for the membership curriculum, which is the rabbinic creativity uh, in the modern Middle East, which will be uh, starting uh, in our membership curriculum period. Professor, thank you for being here. The stage is yours, Bahavad. Okay. Um... Very well, and thank you, and B'Sha'a uh, Tova. Um, this is the second of a series about a Teshuvah Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Hazan, who at the time this Teshuvah was written, I'll remind you, was the rabbi in Rome. The year is 1848, and the question he began with was, whether it's possible to, or it's permissible to establish a bell tower uh, with a clock uh, in proximity to the synagogue under the idea that when the clock chimes, it will remind people, the Jewish people, the neighborhood about the time, and they will be able to attend services properly uh, without forgetting what the time is. And um, he began with the Teshuvah of Rabbi Yosef Kolon. Um, this is um, recapitulating what we did last week or two weeks ago, actually. He began with the Teshuvah of Rabbi Yosef Kolon, who lived in Italy and who died in 1460, who determined that the Hukot Hagoyim, the forbidden practices of the Gentiles, which we should not follow, um, fall under two rubrics. One is if it's something which is absolutely illogical, it has no logic, and it's just so, and they're going to do it just so, not because of any specific logic. And therefore, if we do it, there's no reason for doing it except that we're imitating and following the goyim, and we shouldn't be doing that. And the other is, if the practice of the goyim has something to do with uh, um, very negative values that we should reject. Otherwise, um, what the goyim do and the Jews do is what is reasonable and not strongly negative from a moral perspective is something that the Jews and non-Jews do as human beings for the same rationale and there's no issue about that. And very easily after a relatively short time, um, Rabbi uh, Israel Moshe Hazan was able to show on, uh, on this logic that there's nothing wrong and it's perfectly reasonable to have this bell tower. And uh, he could have stopped at this point, but obviously if you look at the Teshuvah, you realize that he wanted to use this question as a stepping stone to the larger issue of, in general, the relationship between Jewish behavior and non-Jewish behavior, especially in the field of religious activity, 
and he took issue. Okay, the, the Bach Beit Hadash, Rabbi Yoel Sirkis of Poland uh, from the 17th century had written that uh, Jews in uh, synagogue service may use the same type of music that the Gentiles use in their services, but they shouldn't take the exact same tunes. And Rabbi Yisrael um, Moshe Chazan said, well, actually, I don't agree with that because the question is, why would one think that you would be interested in using the same tunes? And the reason might be that these things work. And if it works, it, it has a certain psychological experiential effect upon your religious experience, then it has a logic to it. If it has a logic to it, it's not but it's rather falls back into the area of mishpatim or rational. And he takes up the question of the entire or aspects of the temple service, which the Rambai in Morena Wuchim admitted that he had difficulty. Why were they using uh, wine in the temple? Why were they uh, using uh, certain other elements of, of incense? And uh, he cited the commentary of Shem Tov and Shem Tov on the Rambam, who said the reason is that human beings in general are affected by the senses, the five senses. And the whole construct of the temple was to give people a multi-sensory experience of being in a king's palace and a king's home. And therefore it was very richly decorated and there were people playing music and there was incense and lights and whatever. And the temple is constructed to give the visitors to the temple who come, all right? Shavuot, people come and they have the experience or they should have the experience that they're visiting in the palace of the most great an exalted king, because in parentheses, really, God doesn't need the temple. Okay, the temple is built to provide a certain religious experience of being in the presence of the king of the universe to the people that come there. And therefore, music is an important element and it was an important element in the temple and other things now. And he says, at this point, the distinction between which music is falls apart. And he says, and now I'll bring you, and here we're getting back, and I'll share screen with you. Just a minute. Um, yes. Okay, I'm gonna share a certain screen which will look different. But, okay, okay, here we are. 
Okay, and this is where we reach the second time and I'm going to try to make the text bigger. Okay, and at this point he says, and here we're continuing near number 12, I have a great proof. Anything that has a rationale that's connected to it causes certain pleasure or a sense of honor or that human nature uh, relates to it positively according to the various customs of the various countries and the different places. Although this form, this specific experience has already been employed for worship by the uh, houses of worship of whatever nation, not only is this permitted, and it's not forbidden under the rubric of but even more than that, it's a mitzvah to follow in the way of how the Gentiles do it, and to bring honor and a great positive impression to our Okay, in each country, there are certain ways of doing things and certain types of cultural and sensory experiences make an impression on people in that country. And these things are geographically oriented, he uh, holds, in this area of the world, people experience certain tunes, certain behaviors, certain gestures in certain way as honorable, respectful, sense of awe, and so on. And whatever works in that context works for Jews and non-Jews equally and therefore the Jews are permitted, in fact, should be encouraged to follow that way. And what is his proof? This is a proof, and we're just gonna see that in a moment. The question that was asked of Rashbash, Al-Kahal Shiratsul Askim, a synagogue that wanted to reach a, a, an haskama, a, a order to ordain for their community. That people should not come into the Bet Knesset with shoes on. Because this causes intense disrespect and dishonor to the Jewish behavior on the part of the Muslims. Okay, and he goes on to sum up this teshuvah, but actually we're going to see it in the original in a moment. Okay, and here you have it. 
and you have that Rabbi Shalomo ben Shimon Doran was born in the city of Algier in 1400. His father, the Tashpitz, uh, was a great rabbi who had come from Spain to North Africa. And uh, Shalomo ben Shimon Doran um, became a Dayan in 1444. Well, even in his father's life, then he became the chief rabbi of Algeria in 1444, and he passed away in 1467. And he is writing here to the Dayan Rabbi Amram ben Chacham ben Bibin Yamin, who comes from Bejaia in Algeria. Sha'alta, you asked, Kahal Sheratzule Askim, a community wished to reach an ordinance, Shere Knesset Amra Beta Knesset Bemina Alim. Because the Muslims deride people who come into a respected place when they're wearing shoes. There already is a difference in Igog in that community where people have already agreed not to come in with shoes but apparently this community that we're now that is now contemplating making this a decision is people that came from Spain right and in Spain everybody comes in shoe or boots or sandals or whatever into bit Knesset and now they're in a different place. And some people in the community want to change the minhag. And some people rejected this and said, why so? Rambam himself allows people to come to Bet Knesset in shoes. You wanted to hear my opinion on this topic. Okay, so here is what Rashbaz Shilomo Ben Shimon Duran says. Teshuva. Davar yadua hu shebeta keneset raui lefaaro uleromemo ulechabedo uleharchik mimenu kol minei bizeon. It's clear and well known and obvious that in a bet keneset we should make it the most beautiful, sublime, and honorable and to distance from the Beit Knesset anything that is negative and disgusting or repulsive. And now he says, however, what does this mean? What does honorable, impressive, striking also mean? It means something that causes a certain reaction on the part of the people who are there. Okay, so now we're going down a bit. He says, he says, okay, now that we understood that, akavod vehabizayon ha'amiti hu kefi machshevet b'nei adam hu kefi ha'mekomot. Okay, there are certain things that are universal, he believes, 
in all human beings and certain things that are culture bound and cult in a cultural context, different people experience this differently. What really matters is in the internal quality of the person's soul and personality. But there are certain things which seem like honorable and seem like disgusting and key. who wear clothing that people think is honorable clothing, they will respect that person. But if he wears clothing that's full of patches and sewn together and mended, this will be considered by people as something dishonorable and lowly. The person if we have a brilliant genius tzaddik who wears very poor and unattractive clothing, that really doesn't say anything about that person and vice versa. If we have someone who is negative, wicked, uh, um, cruel and so on, and that person wears very honorable clothing, that really doesn't say anything about the person himself. Okay. People relate to the external impression created by various things. There are some clothing. If somebody will wear a certain type of clothing in a certain place, they will be considered wonderfully honorable. But if that same person with the same clothing would now go to a different place, he would be looked down upon. From this, you can derive a general mode of thinking about these things. Okay. Things that we consider negative and disrespectful. We won't do this when we consider ourselves to be in the presence of God or in holy places. Now, obviously, we are in the presence of God, always. But we think about this at certain times and places which are constructed or directed to that experience. And there it's inappropriate to uh, behave or wear or look in a negative way. Okay. And that's in fact halacha. Okay, not supposed to spit, uh, cough, uh, 
whatever, uh, okay, כל דבר שהוא ביזיון לפני בשר ודם, השבינן לביזיון לפני הקדוש ברוך הוא ואין ראוי לעשותו. How do we know? We know what if we did it in the presence of another human being, that human being would feel that we're being disrespectful and acting in a disgusting, negative way, that guides us how to behave when we consider ourselves to be in the place or the presence of God. The Hine, and how does this now relate to the issue at hand? Hine ba'arzota notzerim in the countries of the Christians. Shein etzman bizayon kesherichnas adam v'afilu lifnei malkam b'minal. People come in to the house, even to a palace, even they come before the king and they're wearing boots. They just got off their horse. They come into the palace, right? You see the movies, and there they are bowing down before the king wearing their shoes or boots or whatever. In those countries, therefore, in those countries, if somebody comes into the Bet-Kenneset shod with shoes or boots, that's fine. It's not Bizayon. But here we are in North Africa. שהוא ביזיון להיכנס לפני גדוליהם וכל שכן לפני מלכם במנעל. In these countries, it's considered highly disrespectful to enter into the presence of a high-ranking individual and certainly the king when you have, when your feet are in boots or sandals or shoes. Therefore, in these countries, אסור להיכנס בעירם בבית הכנסת במנעל. In these countries, for the same reason that you can't do it, or you wouldn't do it in an honorable, local, uh, high-ranking person, you won't, you shouldn't do it in shul, in bed synagogue, mishum kal v'chomer. Uma lifnei melech basar v'adam ino simken, lifnei melech v'arachim amlachim ha'gadosh v'aruchu halachat kama v'chama. So therefore, is a kal v'chomer from, the behavior in a normal social context in the presence of a high-ranking person, not to act that way uh, or inappropriate, what's considered inappropriate before uh, uh, God in those places, okay? And he repeats this once again. People come up to their own bed and they only take off their shoes, hopefully, before they get into their bed. But into the most intimate places in their home, they come with the same shoes from the street. In those countries, ואין הדבר תלוי במה שעושה האדם בביתו. In other words, let's say you came from Spain and you're used to wearing shoes everywhere. And therefore, when you come into your home now in the town of Algeria, you continue going into your house wearing shoes that you just came off the street. Now you say, well, I do it in my own home. I'll do it 
in synagogue also, he says, no. אין הדבר תלוי במה שעושה אדם בביתו, אלא במה שמקפידים בני האדם. What is the social convention that people take offense at here? שאם הוא מזוהם בביתו, if you in your home act in a disgusting, repulsive, dirty way, ונכנס בסנדלים, and you come into your home shot, אין ראוי לזהם בית אלוהינו. על כן טוב הדבר, and therefore it's very good, אשר רצו לעשות, להסיר חרפת האומה אשר חרפונו. And therefore, the decision that they wanted to take to forbid Jewish people, even those who are used to wearing shoes at home, from coming into Beit Knesset with shoes is a good thing, להסיר חרפת האומה אשר חרפונו, because what? the way that the Jewish religion looks in the eyes of the non-Jews is important. Okay, we are the representatives on earth as it were of the Kadosh Baruch Hu. And therefore, if we behave in ways that cause other honorable people to regard us negatively and to say, look how the Jews are acting in their Beit Knesset, that's a critique that should resonate with us. Um, and to the, the fact that until now they did make that rule doesn't prove anything the rabbis of previous times left space and left room for us to make improvements as we feel are correct and appropriate. The fact that until now nobody brought this up doesn't mean that ipso facto it's something that we have to continue. Okay, and I'll go down. And he says, Alma, and a general rule is, changes, meaning the specific content of halacha. Halacha says, act honorably, respectively, and decently in Beit Knesset in the presence of God. But the specific content of what it means to act decently, appropriately, and honorably in the presence of God, Hadin Mishtanebaze, Kefimin Hagamekomot, Bemashe Hoshevim Oto Kinai, or Bemashe Hoshevim Oto Kavod, the specific content of act honorably and decently changes with what people in each place and time think. Is honorable and different. Bezebarur Harbei says this is so clear. Lohaiti Tsarikh Lahavia Lavraya. I wouldn't, I really didn't need to bring any proof for this. Sheikhev Shar, how is it possible? Shebebeti Shmaili Echad Pachutche Babechutin, even in the most low, simple, and unimportant Muslim person. 
לא יוכל אדם להיכנס במנעל, you can't go in there in a shoe, ובבית אלוהים ייכנס, איזהו כבודו ואיזהו מוראו, and then he says, ואפילו לא היה בדבר איסור, even if it wasn't an express rule in halacha that we have to act in certain, in an honorable and decent way in Betneset, let's say there were no, we had no rules of our own in that respect. ואפילו לא היה בדבר איסור, היה ראוי לעשות תקנה בדבר משום חרפת האומה. Even if there were no halachot that forbid this or that behavior in the Bit Knesset, but certain behaviors of ours in Bit Knesset would cause the non-Jews to look very negatively at the Jewish nation. Okay, that itself would be a reason for us to adjust our behavior. accordingly. Okay, so this is the teshuvah of Rabbi Shlomo ben Shimon Doran, and now getting back to Yisrael Moshe Chazan, right, he begins citing it here, and he goes on to cite it, and uh, you can, it's, you saw it now in the original, and he says, Okay, here, we, from this we can learn two general things. Hada one, Mashehu kavodu bizayon amitiu kavoda nefesh u bizayon a nefesh, vehu ba'ez, and this is something inherent. What's the internal honor and respectfulness, and that's something which has to do with the personality, okay, and the different senses. That's common to all human beings, okay? וכיוצא בזה הוא כבוד הנפש וביזיון הנפש לכל בני האדם, ישראל ואומות העולם בכל מקום ובכל זמן הם שם. There is certain, he believes, which is, I don't know, this is actually the case, or that anthropologists have found this. Okay, there are certain things which he believes are general, to human beings around the world and are not culturally contextual. I mean, I've heard it said, I don't know if it's true, right, that if you smile, everybody around the world will realize that you're making a positive facial expression. And if you make certain other threatening that way, right, so, There are certain things that are generally, or if you cry out in pain, people will recognize this and, and around the world. Shemit, he says, and what the second thing we learned from the Rashbav, who bizayon vekabot hanefesh hamedumma, what we imagine, vehu lefi minhagan shehaaratzot. But this is culturally contextual. The Ashmoinan bazeh Rashbash. רבי שמעון דורן טורטס, שאם אומות העולם, if the non-Jews in a certain locale, מפני שהם בני אדם, 
המרגישים ביישובו של עולם, if the goyim do something, and they do it, why? Because they are human beings and they have certain impressions, certain sentiments, certain cultural conventions of Yishuvo Shel Olam. If they tafsu be'eze devarim ha'murgashim ve'amuchashim b'chivod ha'nefesh ha'atzmit o'amedumit, if the people in a certain locale, non-Jews, because of their sensibilities as human beings, have adopted certain behaviors or rejected and consider very negative other behaviors, and but they take certain behaviors positively, okay, said because of they're so beautiful and perfect in the eyes of the people in that country, and therefore, Sidarumu Asaumu Kivaumi Hadul Bet Filatam de Havodul Tiferet Kayotsebaze, they thinking things to be especially beautiful, attractive, and lovely, adopted it in their divine service and prayer. Why? Because they are human beings and they want to bring the most beautiful and wonderful things to their uh, um, worship. Or on the other hand, or conversely, they distanced from their service or their uh, church or mosque or whatever, things which they consider very negative and repulsive. In all of these honorable or negative things, we don't have to say let's say the people in that locale were Jewish have already from time immemorial for a long time been doing things very similar to the going, what the going consider honorable, the Jews consider honorable. Therefore, what the going do it in their bet uh, tefillah, the Jews also do it, or vice versa. So we don't, not only einam ovrim mishum uvechukotehem lo telechu o lo ta'asu kemaasehem vechadome. And not only is this not something which Torah forbids, shaharei because if we and they are living in the same place for some time and we and they have the same social, cultural, aesthetic conventions, so both of us imported this from the general cultural context into our worship because we took the best of the cultural context and took it into our worship and rejected what's negative. We didn't copy this from the going, right? We, as they are human beings, and we sense what's good and choose what's good. 
רוב דעות בני תבל, either according to what everyone in the world or most people in the world experience, או בהרגל יושבי המדינה, or according to what's custom in that country, איש ואיש יולד בה. And the Jews that are born in that country have very similar sensibilities to the non-Jews. And they choose what's good and they reject what's bad. So that's obvious that that's fine that if we see that uh, uh, we and the Goim uh, have independently each of us adopted the same modes of behavior, we now don't have to stop doing this because we suddenly realize that the goyim also do it. No, both of us took it from the general culture, the human culture of which we are part. But he says the Rashbash even indicates more than that. עוד זאת חידוש השוען על הרשב"ש, ואדרבה, not only we are permitted and it's fine to follow the same conventions in our Beit Knesset as they're going in theirs, אדרבה מחויבים אנחנו להידמות עליהם. We have to want to act like they do, ולפאר ולרומם כנסיותינו our synagogues, כמו הם, בכל מיני דברים המורגשים בכבוד הנפש יהיו עצמי ומדומים. We, let's say until now we didn't catch on. We weren't aware of certain very fine, attractive, aesthetically pleasing things that existed in this culture because we had not heard church music, for instance, then, and now we hear it and we, well, that's great. He said, the Rashbaz teaches us that we should adopt that because otherwise our oivim, or the people that are opposed to us, will say, כי אין אנו מרגישים בכבוד הנפש היקרה ונמשלים כבהמות יער. In that cultural context, the Jews, if they act in certain ways, will look terrible to the goyim, and that's something that we should avoid. Behashta, now that we have seen this, he says, let's think about this. If, for instance, imagine, the nations with whom we live, the people where we live have built a most wonderful place of worship in a wonderful, sophisticated, and a very uh, attractive uh, building. Now, 
they realized what type of architecture really causes very positive, wonderful, and sublime feelings. And that's how exactly they built their place of worship. Okay, now we didn't do that until now. Can you believe because the Goyim discovered before we discovered how beautiful you can make a building, they discovered it before us. That because they did that, can you imagine, he says, that because the Goyim caught on before us what wonderful aesthetics and sublime architecture can be done, we are not allowed to do it. Why? Because the Goyim did it first. Can you imagine? If they, before us, establish these ways of architecture and decoration and aesthetics for use in their holy places. Are we now, because of this, bound and chained and prevented from using these same modes and these same conventions and these same architectural things in our place of worship? Well, okay. This is something which no intelligent person can believe. Okay, and now he says, so you see that the issue here is that Rashbash and also, of course, Rabbi Samo Shechazan himself, who cites Rashbash and explicates the a, a implicit meaning. Human beings have common sensibilities and it's right and appropriate to use the most, whatever works best to create certain experiences for worshiping God and uh, um, constructing places of worship and decorating them and so on. And the fact that the Goyim did it first before us cannot mean that we should refrain from that. Ha, however, he says, ostensibly the Rambam says otherwise. The Rambam in Chot Abu Dazara writes, Velo komot you should not construct or may not construct buildings in the same way as the temples of Avodah So in order that many people shall come into those buildings in the manner that the Goyim do. And therefore it would seem 
that if the goyim build a place of worship, right? These, the, it would seem that the Rambam, when he says hechalot, which really means palaces, is talking about places of worship. And if they're going to build places of worship in a certain way, palatial buildings, we can't do that. But now he goes into analysis of this. He says, that can't be the plain meaning of the text. And he discusses the various meanings, which I want possible meanings. And he gets to what is the correct meaning uh, in his view. Okay. Haimetu Kavanata Rambam Zal al There's a different way, which is the correct way of understanding what the Rambam says. Sheperesh Harav Merkevet Hamishne Ashkenazi. Okay. Two works of commentary on Mishne uh, Torah have the same name. Merkevet Hamishne. One of them was written by a Sephardi and one by an Ashkenazi. And he says, Okay, and who is this? This is Rabbi Shlomo ben Moshe of Chelma, which is Chelem. And if you look him up, you'll see that he was a rare individual at that time and place in Eastern Europe who integrated Torah studies and general studies, he says, Sheva Chokhmot, he studied mathematics, he studied astronomy, he studied philosophy, and he takes pride in that. And he uh, here says that when the Rambam says, like the Avodazara, he says, Rabbenu, Rambam, from the Sifra, Anaitic work on the Torah. What does this mean? And there is, this is a Sifa, if you look. Don't follow their norms and behaviors. Okay. Don't build buildings like the Goyim do as theaters and circuses. Now, what does it mean, theaters and circuses? The Aruch. The Aruch is the great uh, dictionary of uh, uh, rabbinic terms composed around the 1100 by Rabbi Natan of Rome. High buildings, they are ot misham haschok to see performances. Ubemusaf haaruch, a commentary and expansion of the aruch. Who was written by whom? Somebody who was born in Spain, as Anus. And he expanded upon the aruch based on what? his knowledge of Latin and Greek, which he learned in Spain before returning to Judaism. Erech Teater, 
מוסף ערוך כתב שבזמן נקדמון, in ancient times, היו בעיר רומא שלושה בניינים משוערים שנקראו כן, they were very large buildings called תיאטר או תיאטרון, ויש מפרשים, Kirkasaot, Makom Shemit Kabetzim Lishtot Yain, place where they gather to drink wine. Alkandi Vemer Keveta Mishne, Udevarashem Lefiu Emet, Shezeu Vadai Kavanata Rambam. He says, Lo Yivne Mekomot Kibinyane Halotchel Akum, don't build palatial, large, wonderful, giant buildings like the Akum, do Kedeshi Kansurahem Rabbim, where many people can come in. Says this is not talking about a place of worship, because a place of worship where the more or few people come in is asu, and the very idea of many people coming together. That's not forbidden. We had a temple which was very big, and many people came there. So the idea that many people will come into a large area is not per se forbidden. giant uh, uh, sumptuous buildings for the purpose that many people come in what's the Colosseo the Colosseum and now writes of Israel Moshe Chazan in his capacity as chief rabbi of Rome in 1848, until today you can see the Colosseum in Rome. This is what the Rambam says, not to build large buildings for public gatherings like the Goyim do. For the same purposes. And the Rambam himself says that spending your time on such activities is a very negative thing. And now comments Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazan, and that's really true. Until today, somebody who is in awe of God, and has correct and perfect about these things, now note this word which I wrote in a different color. Right? doesn't say that somebody who is deeply religious and so on and so forth, doesn't say anybody who is deeply religious doesn't go to theater. He says he doesn't go a lot to theater. 
right? He's living in Rome in 1848. And um, uh, uh, obviously Jews do go to theater, he says, from time to time, it's okay. But if you do it a lot, then you're displaying values that are inconsonant with the true devotion to God. Um, okay, let me see what we have now. Um, he says, and then he says, well, you know what? Uh, Jews can't or should not build such buildings uh, for Jews because Jews are forbidden from going to such places. So why would a Jew want to build it? He said, but let's say as an investment, a Jew wants to build a large theater for public spectacles and plays and other activities. Okay. You build it to rent it to goyim. Okay. And then he says, And under this logic, I supported or lended support to the honorable individual the wealthy, honorable individual who supports many Torah scholars, a Jewish person in Gibraltar, which at that time was already under British rule, built a theater to rent it out to Goim, and Reisem Sheikh Hassan said, you could do that. And then he says, the theaters and what goes on in theaters today, theaters today are not places where they have worship or sacrifices to Avodazara. By the way, if you visit Rome as my wife and I just did recently, just before the uh, corona, you see in the Colosseum that they had these games with the gladiators and the animals and the gladiators killing each other. And in the middle, they had different acts of worship of Avodazara. So Rabbi Yisrael Chazan says, you know what? Today, the theater is not like it used to be. Ure Ayala Davar, and the proof of this is many honorable Jewish people go there to pass away the time and in different rivers and different regions, people act differently. Um, Okay, so there's a lot more to be said about this teshuvah and 
brings many other fascinating sources, uh, which you can either read at your leisure, or perhaps maybe at some time in the future, we can get back to this. But I just want to end with a uh, uh, report that he brings about Izmir. Okay, until now, what has he said? That if there's certain modes of music, of aesthetics and so on that they're going to use in their divine service and it works because the Jews in that place have the same sensibilities, then there's no reason for us to deny ourselves from use of that. Okay, okay. And okay, so I'll conclude with what he brings toward the end. I mean, there's a lot more here, but let heaven and earth bear witness for me. When I was in the great city of Chachamim and Sofrim, Izmir in Turkey, from which his family held, I saw great and famous rabbis that knew how to sing and lead services wonderfully, the shira, right? According to the various modes of music and they were great experts in that. And in order to find the appropriate mode of music for the Yamim Noraim, the High Holy Days, the music of the High Holy Days has to be such that it creates a sense of of people submitting themselves to the great and awesome God. And this is called Hizun, like, like Hazan. To prepare for the high holiday services in the Beit Knesset, the greatest rabbis and Hazanim would go into the Christian church, okay, behind a curtain where they presumably couldn't be seen on the days of the Christian holidays during the service to learn from them the modes of that type of music that causes the person's heart to become broken and submissive before God. And from these tunes and melodies, 
היו מסדרים, they would arrange קדישים וקדושות דבר פלא, the most wonderful קדושות, the most wonderful tune for קדיש על ימים נוראים, they would take from the church. Now the church in Izmir, right? It's the Greek Orthodox Church. And such a factual report about great rabbis, who see you Agadol brings great support. And that's enough. Okay, I'll stop here. Uh, two minutes past time. And um, I'll stop the screen share. Right? And uh, I suppose if there's any questions or comments. Um, thank you. Thank you so, so much for that. Uh, incredible incredible to read the words of Aham that i heard so much about but i'd never actually gone into one gotten into it and dug myself into a teshuvah of his uh i actually first came across via the book that Aham Fa'u wrote about him so uh fascinating it brings brings the man to life uh when reading the teshuvah so thank you for that uh, i do know that it's 11 35 p.m for you in israel right now so I'll just take one question because it's quite late for you. Um, if anybody's got a question, please. Take a couple of questions, no, no problem. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll take a couple of questions. If anyone uh, has anything, please do unmute and go ahead. Nobody. That's usually a sign that uh, it was all clear and understood. <laughs> well, everybody is in a state of shock. <laughs> Indeed, it's, it's a reaction we usually get at the end of our Chaburot. Nobody? No question there. Well, I have one actually. So it just means that I get to ask a question for once. Um, who did we see in Hakam Israel Moshe Chazan's period in 19th century? Um, that you would say is of his ilk, of his type, of his kind. Was he a standout? Was he, uh, was he somebody that was very unique in his approach? Or do we see it as being, you know, just another uh, chain, if you like, uh, link, if you like, in that chain? Uh, and there were others like him at the time. Um, well, um, obviously, if he was a sort of run-of-the-mill rabbi of the mid-19th century, I don't think it would be so unexpected or striking to see what he writes here. So obviously he was an outstanding and both unusually erudite, because you see when he's quoting, he, he brings in from different tishuvot and he brings in from Moray HaNevuchim and the commentary on Moray HaNevuchim. And he brings in various ways of understanding the, the Sifra and uh, the 
מרכבת המשנה אשכנזי, who himself was very interested in general studies, and who quotes this person who was formerly one of the Anusim, and knew Greek and Latin, and could interpret uh, what does it mean, the theater and circus and, and so on. So to put together all of these sources in one teshuvah and construct a very well thought out logical progression of how to make a certain general claim about the relationship between human nature, Jewish nature, human nature, Goyesha nature, and how this all connects and when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate. Okay, so this is an unusually, to my mind, unusually impressive teshuvah. Uh, that being said, uh, there were other rabbis at the time, well, certainly in Italy, and uh, also in other places who, on the one hand, very much appreciated what he wrote. And uh, I think I've mentioned in a previous context that when the, uh, um, the whole idea of music and the importance of music and in Livorno, right? There was a school of sacred music established by Jews uh, in which musical composition and so on and so on was taught in an orderly way. So this type of attitude was not something uh, absolutely unique. Although, as I said, uh, at the same time, I think he was an outstanding example of this type of, of Torah attitude. Thank you. Thank you. I've got a question here from Albert Hassan, a great question. Um, he says, so dress and tunes, they seem to be okay to follow the social norms. What are the limits? At what point do we say not to follow the local standards? Um, it sounds like well, a Shaila. Well, first of all, um, I'm not a rabbi, so I don't have to answer that. And uh, if somebody in the vein of Yisrael Moshe Chazan was to try to answer that, he would say, well, a lot depends on the context and the sensibilities and uh, um, the cultural involvement of the Jews. Uh, certainly, a priori, we are not called upon, according to this way of looking at things, to adopt a priori a negative attitude because the Goyim do it because it's non-Jewish, then we should have no part or interest or involvement with that. That certainly doesn't fit. Now, when and what would be appropriate in different situations, um, this is something which uh, I, I think would be up to the specific rabbi, the specific congregation in a specific context to make that decision and no such decision could probably be made once and for all, right? The people came from Spain, Christian Spain to North Africa, the cultural context changed. What's appropriate in Bet Knesset changed. So 
when we make these kind of decisions, it's not a once and for all decision, but as he said, and this makes things more complicated, but more interesting. Yeah, because I think even if we're using tunes, for example, for religious purposes, Albert just mentioned, I mean, when I, uh, I used to have, a, I, I still enjoy uh, listening to different recitations, whether it's Christian recitation, Quranic recitation, and I can't seem to differentiate between some Mizrahi tunes and classical Quranic recitations. It's very, very, very hard to distinguish the two. It's just the language is different, but the tunes are so similar. So even in the realm of religious borrowing, it seems to have trampled, if you like, or it's gone into that realm. So to try and determine the limits, I remember Avi actually a few months ago, we were talking about, is there a song in Gibraltar or Morocco that sung that you said that you were telling me about, Avi? In Morocco, the, the Andalusian music, uh, musical scale um, in, in Morocco, is common to the high musical culture of the Moroccan Islamic elite and the Jews. Mm -hmm. And uh, both of them recognize this. This comes from the original context of Andalusia. Right? And they have, I think they have the whole thing there. Originally, there were 24 Nubot, each one appropriate, different hour of the day, but some of them were lost. But the Jews preserved more of them than the Muslims in Morocco do. And um, so, so yes, this is yeah. a... Avi, do you remember the one in particular that you were telling me about? Yeah, I think the Kiesh Mera Shabbat, which is very popular, uh, um, I think worldwide now, you know, um, that tune is quite popular tune in Morocco. <laughs> um, so I'm sure there's many examples. You want to give us a rendition, Avi? Oh, wow. <laughs> that one, very popular. There you go. Margaret, I see your hand up. You're muted though. This was all very fascinating. I'm sorry I was late. Many, many years ago, there was a rededication or something going on in Lauderdale Road. I think it was a Hanukkah something, and I attended it with a friend of mine, and they started to sing Adon Alam, and he said, this is a typical um, tune of the Lauderdale synagogue. I said, it's not, it's Judas Maccabeus. And that was a prime example of the head of Handel writing this great music, and it was Adon Alam, it's Judas Maccabeus. So it's, it's interchanged a lot. And I love what the professor said. It's so interesting of our use for the good and the, the positive or where to draw the line. Fascinating. Thank you. Agreed. Agreed. It reminds me of when I was in my uh, anti-anything-influencing Judaism days when I went to uh, Rabbi Dweck and said, the dreidel, why do we use the dreidel? It's like some pagan thing, surely. Well, what, what is this thing? And he said, you know, when we acculturate something where we bring it in and assimilate it for a positive purpose, um, context is key, as we heard the Rav say at the beginning uh, when he shared some words. Uh, context is key. There is no such thing that has inherent uh, context. And the professor has 
clearly shown that today in the words of Hacham Yisrael Moshe Chazan. Professor, thank you so, so much. Um, everybody else, thank you hey, all for being here. Sometimes in order to preserve really? yeah. the identity of the Jewish prayer, there is a modern trend among, among Chazanim to, to take modern Israeli tunes and to bring that to the prayer. And I think that's wrong because you don't concentrate on the prayer. Your mind is wandering to the modern, like um, there were songs of the Six Day War, which they used to, to put into Adonalam, which fits in, or Enkelokena, which fits into absolutely anything. And it's wrong because your mind is not focused where it should be, it goes elsewhere. So, my thought. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. I will mention in this context that, okay, there's two traditions of Bakashot, which are of early Saturday morning in the winter. So there's one in Morocco, which follows the Andalusian uh, uh, tradition. And there's one which is, uh, I, I know very little about this, but there's one which is associated with Halab, with Halabim, and later it came to Jerusalem uh, and so on. And it was instituted in Halab um, around the year 1800, specifically to attract young Jewish men away from popular Arabic music, which usually took place in venues which were considered culturally inappropriate, coffee houses and so on and so forth. And they intentionally used the rabbis, they wrote Piyutim, intentionally used the popular music of the Syrian Turkish popular music for Bakashot. And it's written in the prayer book, this Bakasha is according to this tune and the original tune has nothing to do with Bet Knesset, but everybody knew it. There you go. There you go. And it reminds me of reading about the, the last point, reading about the Piyutim of Hachmesa Farad uh, in a book by um, Jacob Schachter. And he said that uh, all the beautiful poets that we have today would never have existed if it wasn't for the Islamic poetry of the time that influenced the Hachamim to model their piyutim upon. So uh, just goes to show if we take things for the good and bring it in and uh, change the context and give it a cut. It reminds me of the line from uh, Rav Kafach that uh, anything that's done to know God is holy. There is no distinction between holy and secular if the uh, entity is being used for holy purposes. So on that note, thank you so much, Professor Zohar. Thank you so much. Uh, we can't wait for the new series to begin during membership mode. Everyone, whoever's not signed up, make sure you do. We've got a fantastic series with the professor. And uh, I hope you and the family are safe, Professor. Our thoughts and prayers are with you and everybody there. And uh, look, looking forward to seeing you soon. Good night, everybody. Good day, wherever you are. And catch you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening.
We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Have a great day.